But what if I told you that Christianity is not fair? What if I told you that God's love isn't fair? You'd be a bit surprised, wouldn't you? Because being fair is good, and Jesus is good, so you think that Christianity needs to be fair. But as we look today at Matthew chapter 20, we will see that the kingdom of God is not fair. And that is actually a really good thing. (laughs) Because the best thing about being in the kingdom of God is that we're actually not treated fairly. We're not treated as we deserve. We're not given what we should get. And this is actually really, really good news. And we'll see this today as we look at one of Jesus' more shocking stories. That's the parable of the workers. And I think the key to understanding it comes in the verse just before it, at the end of the chapter before. Matthew 19.30 But many who are the greatest now will be least important then. And those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. This sets the scene for the story we're about to hear from Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, where we read, For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and he sent them out to work. I think it must be a bit like how casual teachers at about 6am in the morning will get an SMS saying, can you come into work because so-and-so's got a runny nose. This landowner turns up and he's there at the markets or whatever at the crack of dawn and he tells these people they will get a fair pay for a fair day's work. He hires workers at the start of the day. But a few hours later, this happens, verse 3 and 4. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and he saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. They're going to be paid righteously, literally. But he didn't stop there, because then verse 5, we read that they went off to work in the vineyard and at noon, and then at three o'clock, he did exactly the same thing. He's hiring people all throughout the day. The landowner hires people throughout the day. But it's still not over then, because we read in verse 6 and 7 that at 5 o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again, and he saw some more people standing around, and he asked them, why haven't you been working today? And they replied, because no one hired us. And the landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. It's 5pm, the boss sees all these people standing around doing nothing and so he says, come in this final hour and work at my vineyard. So here's the question, what should they all get paid? Well, a 12-hour shift in today's money for a labourer should be around about 360 bucks, about 30 bucks an hour. So you'd think that the people who worked all day, they should get, what, about 360 bucks in today's money, right? And those who work just one hour, how much should they get paid? About 30 bucks. I mean, that's sort of fair's fair, isn't it, right? But what happens? Verse 8. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers 
first. So it's the, the, the people who work just one hour out of 12 are going to get paid first. How much do you think they're going to get? 30 bucks. That's what we'd think, right? What happens? Verse 9. When those hired at 5 o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. 360 bucks for one hour's labouring. You're thinking, you little beauty. But more than just that, if you were a person who just worked all day and you thought, well, they're getting 360 bucks for one hour and I'm working 12, you little ripper, I'm going to clear four grand today. That's what you'd be thinking. But what happens? Verse 10. Well, when those hired first at the crack of dawn came to get their pay, they assumed they'd receive more, but they too were paid a day's wage. They just got 360 bucks as well. That's all. Everybody got paid the same. So how do those blokes who've been sweating it out for 12 hours all day feel about this? Well, not happy, Jan. Verse 11. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. Now, how does that make you feel? When you're reading this, what does it do to you? What's your emotion? What's your reaction to this? Because it feels a bit unfair, doesn't it? I mean, it does, doesn't it? But if the full-day workers went and complained to Fair Work Israel, they'd be told, mate, 30 bucks an hour, that's the award. You got what you were paid. You got what you were supposed to be paid. But they still felt ripped off, even though they got what they deserved. But how does the boss reply? He says to one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage, for one denario? He basically says the same thing. Well, Fair Work Israel says it's one denarius and you got the full bit. All The all-day workers got what they deserved. They got what was fair. But you can still see why they would be a bit upset. So what was the boss doing? Why didn't the boss just pay the last-minute labourers only one hour's wage. Well, he explains it in verse 14. He says, take your money and go, I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. What's the answer? The boss just wanted to be generous. He wanted to give that guy the same amount as everybody else. And so the boss then turns it back on the grumpy workers, verse 15. He says, is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Of course it's not. And should you be jealous because I'm kind to others? Well, to answer the first question first, no, it's not against the law. He can pay people well over what is the award if he wants to. He can give money to anyone he likes, really. There's no law against that. And then the second question is, should they be jealous? Should they be jealous because of his kindness? Well, what do you think? I mean, in a perfect world, they should be happy for others. I should say, hey, how good is it? I got a full day's wage, and lucky these guys, they got a full day's wage as well. Isn't that awesome? All of us together, all that we needed. I'm so happy for these guys, and I'm so happy for my boss, and I'm so happy for me. And that's what it should be like, shouldn't it? 
But sadly, this jealousy is normal. And I think it's even normal amongst us in this room. You go down to the supermarket, you've been shopping, you've got a big trolley full of stuff and you go into the checkout queue and there's a trolley in front of you and a trolley in front of them and then there's the person at the checkout and they're loading it all up and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and waiting and then the next person comes in and then away you go and then you're almost there and then over the PA it says, uh, hey Jan, can you open up checkout number eight? And so then open up checkout number eight and in comes sailing from the back like a sort of a shopping centre Stephen Bradbury right to the front of aisle eight and you're still there stuck behind somebody else and they're already putting through their flybys card and you're thinking, how the heck has this happened? And are you thinking, isn't it nice that they have had a positive shopping experience? <laughs> you're thinking, I've just lost ten, hour, ten, ten minutes of my time, I'm never going to get back again. And you don't say to yourself, oh, I'm being so unchristian. You're thinking, no, this is just not fair. I think this is who we are. It's the way we're programmed. We're programmed to see things when they're fair and when they're not. And we see this in the Christian life as well. I wonder if you've ever thought of this. You know, I've been a Christian for most of my life. You know, I was... um, Grew up in a Christian, sort of a Christian home, sort of. But, uh, but certainly, uh, for me, I always knew myself as a Christian. And then, you know, since I've been a teenager, I've followed God. I've been to church pretty much every week. And I've loved doing it. It's been great. I've made decisions following Jesus and all that kind of stuff. And then you hear about these other people who live a life of partying and doing all this bad stuff and things like that. And whoop-de-doo. And then they become a Christian at 50. And you think, oh, hang on a second. How come they get treated by God as well as I do. I mean, can't, you know, I've spent ha- my whole life being a follower of Jesus and they've spent half a life following Jesus, so maybe they should get half of heaven, perhaps, and I get all of it. You know, we, or why did they get all the fun and not me? Which I'll talk about that as a separate time. I mean, they didn't. You, you got it best if you follow Jesus all your life. But we have these deep-seated views, these, these deeply held values of fairness, But there's another aspect of the story that we need to recognise, and that is that the nation of Israel, in a lot of ways, is like the all-day labourer. Israel has been the promised nation of God's people all throughout history, and now, right at the very last, the 11th hour, (laughs) the Gentiles are going to come on in. You can see how it will apply here. It seems unfair, but this is the way God's salvation works. But you see, this story, I think, is actually more about true greatness and less about fairness. I think this is what this story is more about. And and um, stick with me in this one and see if you agree. Think about how how the verse was that started it. And think about this verse that's the punchline. Verse 16. So those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. I think that what we're getting out of this parable is that unfairness is the way that God saves us. And the unfairness is actually experienced by Jesus. Jesus didn't get what he deserved. He was treated unfairly. And yet it was his unfair treatment that gave us an unfair salvation. He deserved the royal treatment. He's the king of the universe. 
but he was executed as a criminal. You call that fair? And what about us? We deserved hell. But we're given heaven if we trust in Jesus. You call that fair? No. The greatest travesty of justice was on the cross. It's the most unfair event in history. And yet through that we were unfairly rescued from God's anger and we were given eternal life. And it reminds me again, as I was preparing this, it reminds me again of the two criminals who hung beside Jesus on the cross, on either side of him. One of those criminals had what we call a deathbed conversion. And here's how he spoke to the other criminal who didn't like Jesus at all. The guy who's been converted to follow Jesus, he says, we deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And what does he do? He turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus says, I couldn't do that. That'd be unfair. No, he says, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. Well, what's he done to deserve that? Nothing. It is a stunning injustice. It's just not fair. But that's the way God works with his grace. The greatest man of all time, Jesus Christ, has been treated like the lowest of all humans, dying in the most barbaric way at the most brutal people on earth, the Romans. And that criminal who hung beside Jesus is now given paradise even though he's done nothing to deserve it and could do nothing to save himself. As we read earlier, oh, sorry, they've got the Luke verses are up there on the screen. Yep, as we read earlier. But many who are the greatest now will be least important then, and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. And I think this is the reason we have the parable of the workers. I think this parable makes us feel the injustice of Jesus. It's to help us see what real greatness is like and what real greatness cost. Which brings us to the next episode in this history of Jesus, verse 17. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem and he took the 12 disciples aside privately and he told them what was going to happen to him. Every step towards Jerusalem is a step towards Jesus' death. He is dead man walking. He's going right into the very centre of the action, of the fire. of the. Of... And right there at that point, Jesus gets his disciples again together and he tells them what is going to happen to him. Again, verse 18, he says, Listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die. This is where Jesus is going. This is what is about to happen. This is this dramatically, overwhelmingly unfair thing that's about to happen. But it won't end with the Jews, verse 19. They will hand him over to the Romans, literally to the Gentiles, to be mocked, flogged with a whip and crucified. But on the third day he'll be raised from the dead. 
And the Jews won't carry out the execution. They've delegated that to the people who cause pain like no one else has in history, the Romans. But literally the Gentiles. We've seen in this time in, in the history of God's people that God has used the Gentiles to punish Israel. Over and over again as they've been in exile, it has been the Babylonians, it's been the Assyrians, it's been these guys who've come in and have the Gentiles have, have punished Israel. And so they will do that to the greatest Israelite of all time. But Jesus will also be raised from the dead. And we know that's where their hope is. Can you see how this fits into the story of the workers and the wages? Because if you think that it's unfair that a person would get paid the same for one hour's work as 12 hours' work, then hopefully you might also see how unfair it is that the Son of Man would be executed when he's innocent. That same sort of feeling of like, oh, that's not fair. Hopefully you get to this bit and you think, well, that's really not fair. And as we feel that unfairness, we start to see the cost of Jesus' true greatness. We see the heart of what is behind true humility. Now, if you've heard Jesus say this to you as you're walking towards Jerusalem, how do you think you would react? What would be your reaction to that? Well, we see the reaction of one of the mums of two of the apostles, which is quite extraordinary. Verse 20 and 21, the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. Come on, boys, we're going to talk to Jesus. She knelt respectfully to ask a favour. What is your request, Jesus asked. She replied, in your kingdom, Jesus, please let my two boys sit in places of honour next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. It seems a bit silly, doesn't it? It seems a bit weird, but you really want it to feel weird? It's right after all of this talk about the fact that Jesus is about to be brutally executed as an innocent man, profoundly unfair, and yet this is what greatness looks like. And then mum comes along and says, I want to make sure my boys get a good spot when you're great. It's like, wow, how did you miss that? How did you get to this place where you completely misread it all? So Jesus doesn't talk to mum. He talks to the boys, the big boys, the men, James and John, and he answered by saying to them, you don't know what you're asking. Do you really know what you're asking? Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Oh, yeah, sure, we're able. It's like, oh, really? And Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup. But I've got no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. My father has prepared those places for the ones he's chosen. It's the father who will choose who will be exalted. It's his job. But then no sooner has Jesus kind of sort of responded to this humiliating question that the rest of the disciples hear about this. Verse 24, the, other ten, the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked and they were indignant. It's like, ah, ah, ah. You wonder why they're so upset. I mean, naturally you'd think, Jesus has just talked about being humble being low, and you just talked about being great. How dare you? 
I'd love to think that that's what was going through their mind. It's also possible they might be thinking, ah, oh, they got in early before me. Ah, oh, I should have picked it three times. Jesus says he's just about to die. I've got to get this conversation in before he gets killed. Hey, Jesus, can I get a spot? Quickly, can I be next in line? Whoa, you know, this is not like Facebook Marketplace, mate. Come on. But regardless, Jesus said to everybody, he says, you know that the rulers in this world lorded over these people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. This is what true greatness looks like. It's not like the rulers of the world who will invade another country just to extend their political power. That's not true power and authority. Putin pushes his chest forward and says, I have power, I have authority. And Jesus says, you have lost the plot. That's not true power and authority. True greatness looks like a slave. Ukraine, how can I serve you as my neighbours across the border? True authority is seen in submission. True greatness is found in humility. And the greatest submission and humility is seen right here. Verse 28. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is true greatness. But his humility had a purpose. His life was a ransom. It was the payment to set prisoners free, a substitute for those who couldn't pay it. He took our punishment, became our substitute, and made atonement. True greatness was seen in this True humiliation, humility, which led to our salvation. And if you want to take advantage of that, if you want the forgiveness you don't deserve, if you want heaven when you deserve hell, then simply follow Jesus. If you want to get what you don't deserve, follow Jesus. And we see this so clearly in these final verses, the last bit today, verse 29 that as Jesus and the disciples left the town of Jericho, heading towards Jerusalem, a large crowd followed behind them, and two blind men were sitting beside the road. And when they heard that Jesus was coming that way, they began shouting, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. They couldn't physically see, but they could spiritually see, and far more clearly than most others. They recognised Jesus was the true Christ, the son of David, and they just ask for mercy. They don't deserve his kindness. They're like workers that turn up in the 11th hour and yet get paid a full day's wage. But the audacity of their request doesn't go unnoticed. Verse 31, the crowd yells, be quiet. But they only shouted louder. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. These guys 
are useless. The blind men are useless. They have nothing in their hand to bring. And that's why to Christ they simply cling. And then this happens. Verse 32. When Jesus heard them, he stopped. And he called, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, we want to see. They know Jesus can bring that healing as he shows his rule over creation. And what happens, verse 34, Jesus felt sorry for them. He touched their eyes and instantly they could see. And then they followed him. What's the first thing they do? I'd say, hey, I want to go and look at some things with colour, surely. But they just can't take their eyes off Jesus. Their healed eyes are focused on Christ. And they say, we will follow you. The men who couldn't see anything could actually see things much clearer than anyone else. And now with physically restored sight, they want to follow Christ. They receive grace. They receive what they don't deserve. These men who constantly lived in a state of humbleness or humiliation. They are the ones that Matthew says here that the Lord Jesus saw and lifted them up. And the blind men are exalted because they've been humbled. Which is exactly how true greatness looks. It's exactly how true greatness works. For this was the mission of Christ Jesus. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. And therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honour and gave him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father.